0: Welcome to the RX for Biotech podcast. I'm your host and producer, Chris Lively. Our guest today is Paul Callahan. Paul brings over 30 years of biopharma commercial and operational consulting leadership to his current role as president and founder of CDT Pharma Strategies. Paul has led access and reimbursement teams across multiple therapeutic areas at large multinational pharma companies such as J and J, EMD Serono, and others. So good morning, Paul. Right. Thanks, thanks for joining the podcast today. I thought maybe uh, the best way to get started today is maybe for you to just share a little bit about what you do at CDT Pharma. What what kind of services and offerings do you, does your does your company provide?
1: Sure, Chris. Thanks for having me today. Appreciate it. Um, so, like the name says, and if folks wonder what CDT stands for, it's Channel Distribution and Trade. Fairly simple. I don't have a clever name. It It, it is what I do uh, and channel distribution and trade from the pharmaceutical perspective. It's who we sell to and through from the point of manufacturing to the point of administration or dispensing um, or if it's you know, or if it's dispensed. To a patient to do self infusion, so or, or self injection. So any of those areas. So it's basically everything from supply chain to the point of dispense, and who should be those channel partners, the intermediaries in the middle that help facilitate the pro- process from manufacturing to administration.
0: No, that's great. You know, this area has frustrated me throughout my career because to me, market access is such a broad term that I know that uh, for many of our clients, it's often misunderstood at best. And oftentimes, it's often an afterthought, perhaps. I mean, we know that's changing, but maybe we could start by you sharing what have you seen in your experience are some of the major market access pain points, you know, as part of new... Let's let's maybe focus on new product commercialization. So what, what have you seen in your experience as the major pain points there?
1: especially with new manufacturers i have a lot of clients that are new emerging manufacturers that are are looking to hit the ground running they they sometimes think they have a strategy clearly developed in their mind because they they've heard of another product or they've been somewhere else so they want to emulate and do exactly what the other Manufacturer where they had been had done, or they may have talked to a channel partner who gave them some advice or or um, strategies that 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 they thought were were ideal. But in those situations, depending on who you you know, if you ask a channel partner for advice, you're probably going to get something stilted towards their favor. Maybe it's not best for the patient and the product journey, which is what I'm really concerned about. So what I find is sometimes they, they believe, hey, just because it worked before for another product, I'm just going to stick this square peg in a round hole and make it happen the same exact way for this product, even though this product may be a different mode of administration or it may be refrigerated versus first ambient room temperature, all these considerations they haven't thought about. And what happens is they'll often race ahead and start picking channel partners. An example of a channel partner would be a third party logistics provider, right? Like there's an ICS is out there. Cardinal has has a 3PL and third party logistics. They step in and will kind of be your distribution center for one of these startup companies because they don't it's not a core competency for a, a manufacturer to actually invest and have their own distribution center. So what will happen is they to pick a good third party logistics provider, you need to know your channel strategy because there are many different channel strategies of how am I going to move the product through the system? Am I going to do a an inventory model where someone in the middle, a channel partner like a specialty distributor or a full line wholesaler takes the product and inventories it? Or am I going to maybe do a dropship model where I, I don't even have any inventory at all? In the marketplace, I'm basically drop taking it right from the third party logistics to the point of dispense or administration. If you do that, that changes the whole economic structure and considerations of why maybe you want to pick a third party logistics provider. So I think it's very common for companies to sometimes race ahead without slowing down. And saying let's let's think strategically through what's the best way to approach this unique product and this unique patient population to make sure that we I, we we develop the ideal channel strategy.
0: Paul, that's great. You've gone right into the heart of really the core of sort of access around trade distribution and all those key decisions. And we know that that the sort of the the sort of strategy has to evolve depending on where you are in the life cycle. So how? How should uh, manufacturers be thinking about their go to market strategy and how does that evolve for product post launch?
1: Yeah, well, if if we're talking about a more established manufacturer that already has products in the marketplace, now, I should stop for a moment because I think we'll probably eventually talk about the evolving, emerging area of cell and gene. That's different. Let's let's assume you're a, an established manufacturer. It's not cell and gene therapies at this point. You already have, a, a let's make it up, an infusion product in the marketplace. You won't have to worry. It won't take as much stra- strategic thought. You still have to do it, but there won't be as much setup and there won't be as much Uh, variables that you maybe haven't already addressed because you already have a market presence, a market access, a commercialization uh, footprint in in the market. So it'll be, I'd say, 12 months before you need to be thinking about adding new products to your existing portfolio. And and if it's going to be some sort of different mode of administration, you definitely will need all 12 of those months to get prepared and make sure you don't just use the same strategy you have for a tablet or a pill and assume it's going to work for an infusion product. It won't. So thoughtful, strateg- strategic process 12 months before for a, an established company. If you're a startup company, you have a lot more to, 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 to think about. We, again, need to think about who's going to be my third-party logistics provider. Who's going to turn my orders into cash and apply it back for revenue generation for my company? Companies don't do that. They don't think about that. But after, the, after you launch and you, you invoice someone downstream, how do I convert that into, into the cash cycle? You need to pick a partner. So to do that, that takes 18 months at least. So you need to start thinking about who is going to, first of all, who is, what is my channel strategy and who will be the partners I want to pick to best facilitate getting the product to where it needs to be.
0: That's such a great point. And I think that becomes even more important when you think about selling gene therapies, which we'll come to in just a moment. I can't tell you, Paul, how many times I've been a part of brand teams who sit there and when they're struggling for growth, just think that contracting is their golden ticket to access. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, I
1: don't know if you have any thoughts there. Well, I do. It's interesting you say that because I, I do think in some cases, contracting is important, it de- it, but it depends as always. If you're the, let's make it up. If you're the eighth anti-TNF agent, like a Remicade or a Simsia, and you're coming into that marketplace, you will need to do contracting because you're not gonna be differentiated clinically in that marketplace. And, and then it may make sense to do it because that improves your market access. A Mistake I also see folks make making when they think about contracting is they think they need to somehow contract with a GPO or with a payer for a product that is already differentiated or novel or new. The truth is they don't need to. And a matter of fact, that's going to be a drag on gross to net. And it's an investment you don't need to make. For market access which is why i always say i'd rather invest in in certainly if you need to use the monies to go there to help with market access great depending on the product but i don't want manufacturers to waste money on a channel strategy and it sounds strange to say this but truth be known a great channel strategy i always like to say this will not increase your sales at all it just isn't however a poorly designed contract uh, the channel strategy will kill your demand, kill your sales. So you need to be thoughtful and think the process through. I don't want you to overinvest in a channel partner who can't improve demand. But there could be in situations where a, a, a smart, well thought through contract with a GPO or a payer may increase access. I'd rather you spend the money there for someone that can actually maybe increase access for spending it with some channel partner like a distributor or specialty pharmacy who cannot influence demand at all.
0: So Paul, just to recap there a little bit on, on, on the 3PL sort of decision. Um, you know, I know you said it should be taken sort of a year, year and a half in advance. I think that, I mean, my feeling is that's probably a good time frame If you're an established player with uh, infrastructure in place, I think that if you're an emerging biotech or cell and gene therapy company, I, I, I you know, I believe that that should be actually much. You should give yourself much more time because, in my experience, you know, you've seen um, these contracts can take six, nine, twelve months to even execute. Right? I mean, you have, what are your which, thoughts which on
1: that? On, which contracts are, are well, just on
0: just on your three PL provider, right? Just going through all the legalese on the order to cash and revenue recognition and and all that. It can take a while with a small company and going through sort of rounds of reviews. Is, do you find so? Do you, do you think you need more time if you're a company is just
1: starting out. Not really. Not not for the not for the three PL piece. Honestly, the the contracting piece takes probably. I, I'm doing this right now with the manufacturer. I just they just completed their contract with a three PL. It took them about three months to get the contract in place. Um, it took you know almost as long to identify the appropriate channel partner who that three <laughs> PL would be. Um, okay. Once you get to that point, it's not really that complex to come up with. A contract for the 3PL. That being said, some of the other contracts downstream with a specialty distributor or a full line wholesale or or a specialty pharmacy, they may take a little longer. I I would say give that maybe four or five months. Um, But overall, if you're doing things sort of in in parallel, um, a good six months overall is plenty to get contracts in place. I'd rather you take the time to go through the thoughtful, identification of the strategy and the partners. And let's worry about the contract negotiation, which we will get through that, that will happen. Ultimately, the most important person in this whole whole chain is the manufacturer, no matter what these partners will tell you. And by the way, these partners will want you to feel inconsequential. I don't know why, uh, I do know why, but they, they, they generally don't want the manufacturer. If you're one of the big three, you generally like to tell the manufacturer that we'll consider You maybe will invite you to be one of our suppliers. Okay. Uh, The truth is, the last time I checked, the big three distributors and any distributor and any specialty pharmacy, the last time I looked, I can't ever find a case where they brought a pharmaceutical product to market. They developed it and marketed it. They don't. Okay. They have an important role. But you are more important. The manufacturer is most important, and you are you are in control of picking who those channel partners will be. You don't have to use any of the big three if you don't want to. Now there are da- there are pros and cons to everything, and that's what we help clients think through because the 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 gut kind of reaction is, oh, I must have one of the big three. I must have Amerisource. I must have McKesson. Or I must have Cardinal, or my product will never get to market. That's not true, uh, and I think that's where. A good consulting firm, like I believe mine is, does a does a strong job of separating fact from fiction. And we want to make sure your strategy is locked. We'll help you get through the, the contracting process. But let's pick the right partners and the right strategy first. And let's not jump ahead.
0: Well, thanks for that very specific example, too. I think that's going to help our audience really kind of uh, distill it down into the, some of these key elements. But let's pivot now. You mentioned Cell and Gene. You know, how does the channel strategy for a cell or gene therapy differ from, you know, other pharma products that you mentioned, more sort of general medicine products?
1: Yeah, it it really is an emerging space. I I would love to tell you that the the puzzle has been solved for gene cell and gene therapy. It is not. It's still evolving and emerging. Uh, We've seen. And, and it's interesting. I always like for any channel strategy, whether selling gene or not, it's good to see what others have done in the marketplace, analog products, just to look at how did they approach the puzzle and solve the channel strategy puzzle. That being said, it doesn't mean you're going to do exactly what any of them do. As a matter of fact, we can learn the good and the bad from everyone's uh, identified strategy. I learn as much sometimes from poorly designed strategies as you do from Good strategies, but you definitely in selling gene, it's a, it's a different model, unlike the traditional branded or specialty products that generally one of these channel partners touches the product, physically has the product and inventories it right and fills orders and ships it somewhere. In this situation, it's, it's not. It's personalized medicine. It's different. They're never going to touch it. They will. They're physically not touching the product for the most part, for most of the strategies that are are out there today for selling Gene. But what they will do and where their critical point is, is they're going to help you with invoicing for the product, credit and collection for the product, and making sure that they vet and they take on the credit risk, which is great value to a manufacturer to help with that whole order to cash process. They're they already established these channel partners, right? With these end centers of excellence for hospitals that you're going to be focusing on with selling gene. So you it sort of keeps it consistent with what the hospitals or center of excell- excellences are used to dealing with with these identified channel partners, but it removes the manufacturer from the risk of dealing directly when it comes to credit and collection because it can get kind of messy, right? A sales rep, let's say a sales rep goes in because the manufacturer doesn't have a partner in the middle and the doctor gets mad and says, hey, you, you know, I'm getting these credit collection calls from your company. Well, that's not good for a salesperson. They should be focused on clinically selling and closing a physician or an office on the value of the product. They shouldn't be worried about credit and collection and and whether or not their their doctors paying their bills that eliminates that process and puts it on someone in the middle. And these products sell in gene much higher price point than what you're going to see in specialty and branded products. Right. I mean, heck, they can be a quarter of a million dollars in some cases. That's a significant outlay. So the whole process of how the product flows and you sell to and through is different. Quick example. One thing you'll need that you don't need with a traditional product is a carrier service. Someone, because the carrier is actually going to get the product from the point of where they collect it from the patient and they're going to bring it back to a manufacturing facility to use that patient's unique blood and samples to make the product for that patient, for that patient specifically. And then it's got to be coordinated to go back from the carrier back to the point where it's going to be reinfused into the patient. And then at that point, we have to think about when are we going to generate an invoice? When does the revenue recogni- recognition cycle start? It's a little different because you'll wait until that final point of when it gets back and is ready to be reinfused. At that point, generally, is when you will think about let's start the invoice process to make sure that And I'm simplifying this because there's many more steps to it, but because there's more. Touch points between an interplay between channel partners, maybe a 3PL, maybe a specialty distributor and and this courier that's in the middle going back and forth. That you need to have really strong SOP standard operating procedures to control the dance and interplay between these disparate partners. So I really think that that's what makes it unique. It's it's you almost need like a a, to use a a, a, a sports um, example. It's almost like you need a quarterback. Someone in this process that's going to quarterback it for you. And then you have all these linemen or receivers that are out there that need to all understand the playbook. And how are we going to to, to navigate this, this interplay to make sure we get it from the manufacturing site, you know, to the to the patient and back and forth a couple of times and then ultimately handle the paperwork and the credit cash and collection that we need to have take place. So it's really different, really different.
0: Yeah. And no, you you touched on something there. I mean, one of the things I mean, any immuno-oncology or cell therapy conference you go to always has multiple sessions talking about the challenges of access or coverage and due to the high price. So I want to dig in for a moment and just talk a little bit about what you think. And I know this might be a little bit blue sky and forward looking, but um, some of the innovative approaches that you might think that might come into play in the future around reimbursement and coverage for these therapies. I know that we've seen... Some companies uh, demonstrate their value of their cell therapies through value based contracting and amortized payment models carve outs I know i you know there been there's been reports what's from spark therapeutics using and and Lux-Terna as an example um, what what do you what do you see as the innovative approaches that might become sticky down the road for payers um, to help ensure equitable access to these products
1: I, I think whenever and and it's interesting. I, I think we always worry about the payer, and, and uh, hey, at a price point like this, the payer is going to be a concern. There's someone that that you know they're on the hook for payment for the, these expensive products. But what a payer is also looking for is is the value, right? The, the clinical benefit. Maybe does it reduce hospitalization or rehospitalization? Does it does it improve quality of life? I mean, clinically, I don't think the product's going to be a problem because these, for the most part are going to be for patients that this is like a last last line of defense. So the payers have already had manufacturers and products step through all these other treatments and agents. This is sort of the last step normally selling genes. So the payer doesn't have a whole lot of control. If the doctor, if this is all that's left for the patient and, or it helps with, with, with quality of life and protect it and ultimately um, it could could extend their life, or maybe potentially as we move forward, um, a cure them. It's really up to the doctor to prescribe it, and the, the payer's not going to have a whole lot, in my opinion, to say about it. Um, if, 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 the manufacturer can demonstrate the value. It always comes down to how do you demonstrate that value, right? It's sometimes easy if if it's cost, if it's, if it's avoidance of hospital time, that's great because the most expensive point of care, place of care in in, in our healthcare system is a hospital. A payer is desperate to keep you out of the hospital. If somehow this can get the patient, not in the hospital, get them out back home, that's where you want them to be. Home is the is the most reasonable side of care. the the the, the most cost effective side of care from a payer perspective is home. So let's get them back home. So if you do have a novel agent, a selling gene product, let's focus on what exactly and how is it going to help the healthcare system? Is it going to help the patient? Is it going to show cost benefits to the to the hospital, the the, the health systems? Is it going to save on We'll we'll get the patient back to home, the more appropriate site of care and the more cost effective. All these things, if we can demonstrate it from real world evidence that's out there would be would be tremendous and a a huge benefit to the product to to make sure that the payer understands that, hey, these patients, we're not just giving it as a first line product. Selangene is not given as first line. They've gone through a process of stepping through a lot of other agents that are probably for sure going to be more more cost effective and, and viewed, you know, much less wholesale acquisition costs for most of these other agents that are out there that these patients are going to be treated with first. This becomes sort of a, you know, the last, last ditch effort to help these patients either save their life, extend their life, or, or maybe improve, improve the quality of life moving forward. So I think if we focus on the clinical. And as we evolve and like always, I mean, with all products, as as there's more experience with them and we're able to demonstrate it based on real world evidence after launch, if we can capture that, whether it doesn't have to be our product, it can just be in the class. If the class together can help solve it, you look at the value we bring and some of it won't be, you know, measurable. It'll be intangible. Some of it. Right. It might not all be cost. Some of it. and, And hey, that's not ideal to a payer. That, hey, yeah, it extended that patient's life by three months, but if it extended that patient's life by three months at home, right, where he can be with their loved ones or she can be with their loved ones, there's a huge benefit to that. We can't ignore that story. So I'm confident that with with the appropriate patient identification, which I know is going to happen with these patients, a doctor is only going to prescribe it when it's needed aligned with the payer and informing them on potential benefits, value adds to having these 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 agents, these novel selling gene products on board, I think we can navigate through that successfully. Did that answer the question? Yeah. I think
0: so. I think um, I think I want to pivot here now and talk a little bit about, you know, since since you know, your role is really to help advise and help companies sort of uh, uh, accelerate organizational readiness around their um, overall market access strategies. A trade and distribution for an early stage biotech company that's developing an innovative uh, biologic or, or cell therapy. What do you think are the capabilities and organizational processes that need to be developed? You, you mentioned SOPs. I think a lot of these companies probably don't even have SOPs written yet, but what should they be thinking of? And when should they be doing this to help ensure successful reimbursement and coverage at time of approval?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't think that they think about SOPs. I have a client, a Selengen client right now. Uh, I was on the call earlier with them today, and we were talking specifically about the need to have SOPs. And, and when I mentioned having standard operating procedures, he was like, oh, we don't have any of those yet. Now, this, this company is getting to us pretty early. They're about uh, probably 18 to 20 months from approval. So there is time, uh, the luxury of a little bit of luxury of time here. But because of this interplay, it is really going to be critical. They also have started down the path of some payer research, which is great, right? I mean, I personally don't do payer research, but there are great firms out there that do payer research. And I I always encourage, hey, understand the landscape, find some of these analog products we talked about. It's great to, it's great to identify an analog for channel and trade and distribution, but my God, it's also very, very valuable to have a, an analog product to go out and do some quality market research with payers to find out what are the pain points. Um, get folks out there. Even if, if, if you have the luxury and you may not have the luxury of having your own sales force yet or payer team to go out, there are contract payer groups out there that can go out there and, and you know kind of touch base and take a pulse check with some of these offices and some of these payer groups and find out like, if, if I give you an example like this, how would you react to it if, 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 if a patients failed, let's say three therapies and now we're onto this new cell and gene and we're able to clinically show the value. And here's some examples of what other products have done in the marketplace, how it's benefited that, you know, healthcare economics. Let's talk about that. Do it early. The earlier, the better to have a payer story. And it doesn't have to be the exact product. It just doesn't. It it can be an analog, something similar or something that that was able to demonstrate the same value that we talked about earlier. But the earlier you can have a payer strategy, the better it doesn't. It won't. It's not going to impact the channel distribution strategy that we've been talking about. But it will as part of that whole market access strategy that you talked about up front, Chris. You know, there's a there's a market access has many, many hats to it. There's the payer hat. There's, there's the supply chain hat. There's a, there's a marketing hat, right? All of those different areas. And, you know, there's a, a clinical side of it, um, that, that you have to be thinking about, you know, as we're expanding access, everyone has to work together as a team. And normally these startup companies in Cell and selling gene, the one I'm thinking about, they don't have a lot of people right now. They have some really smart scientists. They have a really smart marketing person. They have one trade person and, That's about it. And they're building a sales team. So they haven't thought the whole thing through. But thanks to having a little bit of time on their side, they can get the research they need from the payer to be prepared to understand, Okay, what should we price this product at? Right. I mean, something as simple as that, which isn't simple, by the way, but how do you determine your price point? I mean you need to do some pricing sensitivity research again i personally don't do pricing sensitivity but i know a lot of people that do and do it really well it's all part of that whole market access strategy need to address the price point need to address the payer we need to address the channel and distribution strategy all that kind of comes together to make sure that we've got seamless market access meaning hey if a doc wants to write this script or wants the product it's going to flow seamlessly and the doctor will not be disappointed and more importantly the patient
0: yeah so paul i think you you've hit this uh on the head i when you think about the types of skill sets and the roles that these emerging biotech companies are going to need well before expected approval to sort of like you said get the customer insights from the payers do the research refine and evolve strategy the last thing on their mind you mentioned contract like reimbursement or payer folks that's probably the last thing on their mind right now is to hire folks in the field that do that. So, I mean, how should companies be thinking about that? Because, you know, FDA regulations sort of give companies leeway to to get out and have these scientific scientific exchange well ahead of approval. And I think if you don't do that, you're losing a big opportunity. So talk a little bit about that before we we kind of start to wrap
1: up. No, I, I agree. I think too many companies don't think there, there are many ways to do it, by the way. The problem is to what you you hit the nail on the head to be you know very clear. I've lost two jobs while I, when I work with manufacturers because we've got a complete response letter that could happen. I mean, there's no guarantees that the FDA is going to approve these products. But the problem is we have to assume that they will. All this work must be done. Right. So if you don't want to bring FTEs and FTEs on board board because you're you know, you're you're starting up, you have no revenue stream, which you don't. It's it's important to invest in a strong consulting group. That's where consultants bring value. Okay, someone that does pay or get a, a payer consultant on board, get a, a get a, a contract payer team that can go out and, and maybe do have some of these these. Critical discussions with payers. Hire someone like, like me that does contract trade. I can help you get all set up for the trade and distribution side, help you navigate the process of picking the right partners. And you don't even have to invest in getting a trade person on board yet. If you if you'd rather not, till you get closer to approval. But you can't, because you're you're there are some cost constraints or economic concerns because you don't have a revenue stream. You can't, you can't be frugal, so frugal that you don't invest. In these market access areas that you have to do. You can't just wait until you're oh, I'm 90% sure now, six months before, that we're gonna get approved. Well, that's too late. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, we because we don't, we can't, we don't have a crystal ball to know exactly when hey, we have a Padufa date. That doesn't tell me anything, especially right. in the COVID world. How many, how many dates have leaked past the Pinufa yeah. date in the post-COVID world?
0: Right. All good points, and uh, I share the same passion around getting started earlier, because you you don't have a chance after approval to try and, and go and fix all this. Um,
1: Plus, all- Chris, you know, the old, the old adage, right? You only have one chance to launch Yeah, the first time. Your first impression is once. If, yep. you, if you have a, a half-baked market access strategy, any of those pieces, whether it's the channel and trade, if it's payer, if it's your marketing approach, if it's your pricing strategy, all of that contracting strategy, if, if none of that's been thought through and you just launch quickly without forethought, you're going to have a bad launch. And and there's no no matter how great clinically your product is, it's going to prevent doctors and patients from getting your products.
0: So you're in the C-suite or VP level, you know, uh, on, the, on the commercial leadership team at one of these biotech companies. What is your final piece of advice here? Paul, to kind of wrap it up around ensuring that all that appropriate work is done for market to ensure market access for advanced biologics or regenerative medicines uh, post-approval.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's critical to engage um, someone that can help you through the strategy process. I always like to say this too, by the way, a lot of manufacturers come to, to consultants like myself and say, Hey, just tell me the, the strategy, Paul, what do we need to do? And I'm always like, you don't want me to tell you, first off, I'm not going to I can't tell you the strategy. Um, And first off, I can't own the strategy. You will own it. You need someone to help you navigate through a strong, rigorous, strategic process to figure out what is the ideal, appropriate channel, trade, distribution, payer, pricing, contracting strategy to make sure that all the good clinical things your scientists are doing it will not be wasted upon some mistake or misstep that's made in the commercialization market access strategy. So engage someone earlier, the better you said, or 18 or earlier, Hey, I would love folks to get to me 24 months before. It just doesn't always happen. Um, heck I've had folks come to me 12 months before, and that's not enough time. But that being said, we can, with our hair on fire, we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. It's not ideal because you, you, you then potentially open up for missteps, right? Earlier is better. Uh, so thinking it through, thinking about analogs, come think about your marketplace. If you don't, if you don't know the analogs. Some good consultants can certainly help you. I help clients all the time identify what is an appropriate analog. It Rarely is a product out there that's there's been nothing like it at all. I mean, I'm not saying that the the, the, pro, the and Gene might be unique, but probably the clinical state and a product that's that's solved for some of the issues, they could be applicable and transferable as an analog to the, whatever product you're launching. So that would be my, my advice, start early, start often, get someone that's that's competent, has great insights. I never use the word expert. Uh, I'm not an expert, I tell people. I have insights from doing this for so long and helping and, and identifying sometimes bad strategies and good strategies. We learn as much from the bad as we do from the good. And I think I can help Manufacturers and a good consultant in all these areas can help manufacturers separate fact from fiction, good from bad, and make sure that when they launch, it's a flawless market access launch.
0: Well, Paul, we uh, we unpacked a lot here in, in about 30 minutes. We um, you know, and I I, I mean, I'm, I'm eager to invite you back sometime so we can take each of these sort of topics one-on-one by one and go deeper. We can certainly see the insights that you have and uh, really enjoy the discussion. I'm sure my audience will really, really appreciate your insights as well. So how, you know, what is the best way for folks to get in touch with you if they'd like to follow up and, and, and you can learn more about what services
1: you, you sure, that offer. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can reach me by email at paul at cdtpharma.com and also at www.cdtpharma.com. Uh, I have presence on LinkedIn a lot. I'm out there all the time. Uh, I certainly am out there posting my thoughts and, and some insights that I, I like to share, like to engage in a good uh, uh, discussion out there and do that often. And certainly appreciate you taking the time to invite me uh, today to this session, which I have enjoyed. And I hope that it benefits uh, our our mutually shared uh, manufacturers and and even the channel partners that are out there.
0: Great, Paul. Thank you. I've enjoyed the the discussion very much. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks so much, Chris. The healthcare delivery landscape is evolving rapidly and it's If you are feeling pressure or feeling pain points in your market access, trade distribution strategies, and development, please contact us at Boulder Biotech Launch Specialists. We're a community of cross-functional experts that have actually been in your shoes. We have proven launch expertise. We help biotechnology leaders drive strategic and operational launch excellence early in clinical development through robust product shaping and capability build-out. We can be reached at www.bolderbiotechlaunchspecialist.com or you can reach me directly at chris at bblsconsulting.com.